Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. Jack Rogers. Uh, Jack, back in August, had a uh, really cool God encounter that uh, I challenged him saying, I would really love for you to share that with the congregation. He was going, oh, maybe. And I said, but could you do it in Christmas? And he said, yes. So thank you, Jack. I appreciate you doing this. Come on up. Would you welcome him? Thank you, Ross. All right. Um, I have my notes in front of me because I'm not accustomed to speaking in front of large groups of people like I'm sure you all are. <clears throat> so um, let me give you a little bit of background about me first. Um, I'm one of those guys that really didn't come to my walk with Christ until my early 30s. Um, went to church as a kid but wasn't really involved. Um, it was more of a babysitting service while my parents went to the congregation, the main congregation. and. I didn't understand what was going on there. Um, My wife and I were born and raised in Columbus, but moved around a little bit. And it wasn't until, like I said, early 30s in Chicago that I really started getting serious. So when we found ourselves moving back to Columbus, we were looking for a good church home. And we settled in a beginning church in Westerville, and it was very small. And by small, I mean... The whole congregation was maybe these groups of people right here, and that was it. 40, 50 people at the most. Um, It was nice and intimate, um, but because of that, you had to wear many hats. And I was part of the worship team, which meant not only did I have to play keyboards, but since we were meeting in a middle school in Westerville, I had to show up at 6 o'clock in the morning, unload the trailer, set up the sound equipment and everything else, play, and then tear everything down. And then I had worship team uh, rehearsals later that day. And the reason I bring that up is because during that time period, over a span of about three years of doing that um, and only missing two Sundays, I grew rather close to the worship team in particular, the church in general. Um, Specifically, uh, the worship team leader um, was my spiritual mentor, became that was very close. Um, we were a close-knit group. Uh, she led us in prayer every Sunday. We, She challenged us beyond just the music, and uh, it was uh, a relationship that I hadn't had up until that point, a spiritual leader that would, like, push me and get me to do things as long as, and as well as perform in front of a, a group of people. Um, So imagine my surprise when thing we had a falling out with her, uh, me specifically, because of some stuff that transpired between her and my wife. It wasn't anything horrible, and it, it's not that's not important, but it led us, the, the important part is that it was the impetus for us to leave that church because it hurt, um, and we left things unresolved. The pastor reached out to us and we talked with him, but we still left. Um, and it, 
the reason why I'm bringing that up is because it, it took three or four years after that before I felt comfortable enough to start looking for another church. It, let me back up a second. I didn't mention this in the first surge. It was with these group of people that I was baptized at the age of 32. I mean, this was a kind of a big deal, and the fact that we left was not an easy decision. Um, so anyway, so we were looking for a new church home, and we settled on, Cre- on Quest. And I really didn't give too much thought to the previous experience with the other church. Um, I thought it was water under the bridge, and it was in the past, and, uh, you know, why dig up that stuff? So let me fast forward to this fall. Um, wife and I are driving into Quest late, as usual, and we get a, qu- a text from my oldest daughter that um, she recognized some people. There was a church here that um, was going from church to church checking them out, and it was my old church, uh, a good chunk of them. Um, it, they had decided to... Uh, without going into much detail, to pack things up and to um, dissolve their current church. But they were going from church to church to see if they could find a new church home as a group for the most part. Well, on the drive-in, I was thinking, wow, that's this could be awkward because she could be there. And I wonder how that's going to go. But we were running late. Um, so it was great, okay? Came in the door, right through the lobby and right into my seat. Put my head down and listened to Ross. And that way I didn't have to worry about any confrontation. In fact, I didn't even know if she was here. But sure enough, I turned and, yeah, she was sitting in the back there in that section. Um, I didn't know if I was going to have to deal with her um, or that situation. Um, But... Maybe it, it came apparent that God had other plans. Uh, Ross's teaching that morning was on Daniel. And it was had to do with um, working with difficult people. And, of course, I started thinking about people I worked with, uh, like bosses or fellow employees. But then he started to list people that might have hurt us in the past, co-workers. And then he mentioned... Uh, Christian leaders and I looked at my wife and she was already looking at me with her eyebrows raised and we're like wow okay um, now I realized that Ross was just talking to me I'm not sure why all you were here but he was obviously talking to me um, so I couldn't I decided then I should probably talk to her after the service if she's around in the lobby um, I'll look for her and we'll I'll try and get some resolution because I didn't want to be the reason why you know if they liked Quest and thought it would be a good fit but they can't go here because Jack's here and things are kind of weird I wanted to make sure that was all cleared up uh, when the service end- ended I'm, um, I went out into the lobby and got sidetracked by a couple other conversations I was looking for um, I didn't see her right away, and then I turned to my left, and she was standing right in front of me, staring at me, inches away from me. And before I could say anything, she put her arms around me and whispered to me, I'm so sorry, I screwed up. I didn't realize until that point the hurt that I'd been carrying around for years, the better part of 10 years. 
and how it had affected me because I felt so good. I felt so light. I, it was almost indescribable, the feelings, just from having her do that. Well, it turns out God wasn't just speaking to me. She, he was speaking to her in Ross's message. Turns out she wasn't planning to be there at all. Uh, she and her husband had decided that they weren't going to join the group from their church that was doing this little tour of churches in the area that they were going to pass. But the night before, in a car ride home from somewhere, she had told him, we're going to go. I just get this feeling I need to be there tomorrow. And he's, he, he was there and he, that Sunday, and he was just telling me this before she even did. And he's like, I thought we weren't going to do this. And she said, no, I just get this feeling I have to be there. She had no idea I was here. So it was good that I was late coming in, um, so I didn't bump into her into, in the lobby before I heard Ross's message. And it was amazing that she was even here to begin with and that she had the courage to come to me after hearing Ross's words to resolve it before I even had a chance to. I'm not saying I'd chicken out, but... I've been known to do it in the past. <laughs> um, it was just too many coincidences to be coincidence. This whole event made me feel so small and yet significant to God because he was great enough to put all these things in motion, to set them just in the right place, to have this convergence on that one Sunday afternoon and to bring the healing right to my face. Yet, he knew exactly what I needed and that I needed this, and he made it happen. It it was the gift I didn't expect and I didn't know I needed. Thanks. This other lady, she was visiting for the first time that Sunday, and she was so giddy. It was so fun to meet her in the lobby but it was also kind of awkward, this giddy lady I'd never met who wanted to give me a hug, and it was like, okay, but it was just a beautiful experience, and it's just amazing how uh, God worked it out. This last week I was reading a story. It was a story about a king, and a king who was more wealthy, more powerful than anybody else before or since. He had everything he ever wanted, everything he needed, everything he dreamed of, except for one thing. He wanted to be married. The problem was not a lack of opportunity. There were obviously, he's king, he's powerful. There's plenty of women who would love to be his queen, right? I mean, that's not an issue besides his power and his wealth. The king also had a reputation of being kind and just and generous and merciful. But the king was concerned. He was asking himself a question constantly. He says, if I find the right woman, how will I know she is marrying me for love and not just because I'm the king? And he wasn't sure what he was going to do. But he knew he wanted to be married more than anything else in the world. And he wanted to do more than just share his palace. He wanted to share his heart and share his life with someone. One day he was outside the palace and just walking around and he saw this simple peasant woman. There was really nothing that should have caught his eye. I mean, there was nothing at all, but she did catch his eye. And after observing her for some time, he he realized, man, I think I'm falling in love with her. And he 
it was difficult to explain. I mean, why should he fall in love with her? I mean, she had no wealth, no connections, no political influence. It didn't seem like she had anything at all to offer him. But he loved her just the same. But how should he go about expressing his love to her? He just couldn't figure it out. He asked his advisors and they said, well, you can just command her to love her. I mean, you're the king. She's powerless to resist. She'll come, just take her freedom away. I mean, you're the king. Come on. You can tell her what to do. But the king was wise and he knew he could force her body to be present in the palace, but he couldn't force her heart to be his. And the advisors, since he couldn't come to a solution, suggested he look further into finding somebody more worthy, more noble, more more outstanding to love. And he tried. And yet as the days and weeks and the months went by, he just couldn't stop thinking about her. Finally, he decided perhaps the best way to win her heart is to shower her with gifts. I mean, he saw her, the desperate need, the fact that her clothes were torn and tattered and dirty and she was hungry and she had nothing in this life. And he knew he could snap his fingers within a second, supply everything that would take care of every need, not just need, but every desire, everything she'd ever dreamed of in life. But he wondered, how, how will I know if she loves me for me instead of the gifts I'm giving her? And it dawned on him, the only way for him to know the love was for him as the king to rise from his throne, lay aside his scepter, take off his crown, take off his royal robes. And he left the palace and he went to live in the nearby dump, working as a field laborer, earning just enough in the dirt every day to feed himself. See, the king became as the one he loved. And it was the only way to realize love. In John 1, we see the story of the king in his palace. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. And in John 1, 14 and Luke 2, we see the king become ragged as the one he loved. And it says, The Word became flesh, and made his dwelling among us. And the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths, in rags, in retired socks and underwear, and placed him in a manger, this cow-spit-coated, moldy old feeding trough for animals with manure all around it. Because God wanted to identify with us completely, is what we talked about last week. He wanted to come to us where we are. He wants to win our hearts And that's what he did. And it's a great gift that we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? But it's also a gift that's oftentimes not warmly received. Last week we talked about presents that we got, right? And that we didn't really want, but we needed. And at least we needed them, right? At least they had some purpose in our lives. But, But some people give you presents that you don't want and you don't need them. And there's really no purpose to them that you can see for having them. And it's kind of like, you know, the, the time I got the Chia Pet. You know, everybody remember Chia Pets for Christmas? Maybe you got one. Maybe you didn't get one. Maybe you feel so cheated because they were on TV all the time and you never got one. And you always wanted to see that fro grow out in your own bedroom. And you never got the option of having that. But the way I think is, why would I want a gift like that that I can't play with, that I can't use, that I can't eat, that I can't wear, that I have to water, and it's going to certainly die an early death because I'm going to forget to water it, and I'm never going to get the reward of seeing that fro all the way developed either, right? We've all gotten gifts like that. 
And we see the only purpose for them a lot of times is regifting them at holiday, you know, parties uh, and white, white elephant parties and or returning them. You know, statistically, I'm told that every single one of us this holiday season will return at least one gift. So we're going to do what we did last week. Uh, turn, to, turn to your neighbor and take 45 seconds. Make sure you know their name and, uh, and ask them about a gift that you received that you returned because you didn't want it or need it. And before you do that, just be wise. Make sure the person you're next to is not the one you gave, who gave you the gift, okay? So take, take 45 seconds and do that. Okay, how many of you got Richard Simmons workout videos? Anybody? You had to return them? Wendy has a boatload of stories about return gifts from me because other than winter pajamas at Christmas, I have never successfully bought her anything that she has not returned. (laughs) And it's not because she's mean. She's not mean. Uh, It's because I have zero fashion sense. When we first got married, we spent uh, several years going on dates to the mall on at least a monthly basis. And, And that's a huge sacrifice if you know Wendy because she hates shopping. But what the whole purpose was, she was trying to take me to all the clothing stores and all the decor stores, and she was trying to teach me, you know, what she liked. And it didn't take. It didn't take at all. Here's what some of you wrote about uh, on Facebook about the gifts that you got that returned. Natalie writes, my husband bought me this. Uh, you okay to share this? Because he's right next to you, right? You're, you're violating that. Uh, okay, okay. My husband bought me this plug-in light-up picture. It comes with annoying bird chirping and water rushing sounds. He bought it from a roadside stand on Morris Road, and I've been trying to get rid of it for 13 years. Anybody want it? Raise your hand. I'm sure she'll give it to you. You okay, Jason? You're married to a counselor, so you don't need counseling, right? <laughs> Meredith writes, uh, the 90s version of Epilady. I remember that my mom, grandma, and I all tried it out and marched back to Venture the next day, remember Ventures, to demand a refund for that torture device. Ouch. I don't remember that. Monica, uh, she's two weeks in a row now. She says, I was gifted a horrible gold sequin floor-length knitted poncho-like sweater. It was a serious gift. The giver, who truly has the purest heart, handed it to me with a huge smile and enthusiastically said, she saw it and immediately thought, Monica. And Monica's thought was, what? What part of me did you see in that? I was reading this last week about one husband who gave his wife a mood ring for Christmas. (laughs) Want to guess what color it was when she put it on? It was black. It was black. It's a good idea in theory, right, guys, to have an early warning system that you can don't have to figure out and discern, but, but it's not, not, not for Christmas. So all of us had these presents, presents, and, uh, we don't really want, don't really need, and we return them. And the surprising thing is, on the whole, Jesus was one of those gifts when he was born into the world. John 1, 10 and 11 puts it this way. He says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. It didn't really Look at him and pay attention to him. And he, then it goes on and says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. This gift, the greatest gift ever, was returned by many and continues to be returned by many. It's an interesting word, the word receive in the passage. It's this Greek word parlambano, and it doesn't, it doesn't just talk about the act of receiving. It, it also speaks to the spirit in how we receive something. It's not just acceptance, but it's embrace. It's this idea of taking it into oneself. It's a very personal, 
intimate, uh, kind of this embracing with a sense of delight type of a word. And, and if we were to use it today, it would probably mo- be most appropriate to use it uh, in a wedding ceremony where the minister would say, do you take, do you receive Mary to be your wife? It's this idea of do you take her, do you delight in her, do you love her, embrace her, make her a part of yourself? And this is the appropriate response for the gift of Jesus but it's not the response that Jesus got on the whole. Now, Christmas time is one of those times of year, right, when everybody's a little more accepting of Jesus. And, you know, the stores, a lot of times we go in there, they have Christmas carols and hymns going where we're talking about Christ, the newborn king. And we even have, you know, the, the, the fight back on this inane campaign against red and green Starbucks cups. But yet I saw a Starbucks commercial that said Merry Christmas, you know. And we see hymns and carols being sung in our public schools and in the public square and being accepted. We even have people who are not real serious about their faith, may not even be believe who have these Christmas manger decorations or ornaments for their tree, right? And why is that? Well, I think it's the Christmas story has everything sweet, everything cuddly, everything wonderful, everything dignified, and everything noble in it, right? I mean, think about it. The rich bowing in humble generosity to the poor. God honoring an ordinary, ordinary, hardworking people in the shepherds. We have a heroine who is not the obvious one for the job, but her character and her faith endear her to us. And we have a husband who doesn't judge, who is compassionate and dedicated beyond all odds of what we would expect today. And we have the baby Jesus of whom the carol says no crying he makes, but we debunked that last week because I'm pretty sure he was crying in that stable, cold and smelly. Here's the thing. The Christmas baby Jesus grows up. And he becomes a man. And, you know, most of us still like a lot of the man because he does miracles. He's generous. He befriends the outcasts. He doesn't give up on people. And who doesn't want that kind of second, third, fourth, tenth chance kind of love? But also, he speaks graciously, honestly, but candidly calling out our sin. And he calls us out of the hiding those things which we don't want other people to see so that we will then repent of our sin and will recognize that my sin, your sin, all of our sin together made it necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. See, we want help. We want miracles. We want the kind Jesus. We struggle, though, and we feel offended all too often with the realities of this ultimate divine being who is just and calls us to that same kind of life in our living. And we easily reject him because of his honesty and how uncomfortable it sometimes can make it. So the question is, why did people not receive him? Why was or why is he not embraced as a gift and often returned? I mean, we've already alluded to that fact that we love the baby Jesus, the friend Jesus, the miracle Jesus, the teaching Jesus, especially when he's rebuking the religious leaders who are wrong or who are making life really uncomfortable for us and demanding change, but but when the preaching Jesus becomes personal to each and every one of us, there's a lot of people who go home. In John 6, we see this. Jesus feeds the crowd of thousands with the lunch of a boy and does this tremendous miracle. And everybody loves the miracle Jesus, but then Jesus decides to preach and he starts talking, if I can allow me to summarize. He says, if you want to follow me, if you want to know me, If you want to receive the benefits I'm offering, then you need to love me. You need to identify completely with me. And we see a lot of the people in the crowd go home. 
They want the goodies. We want the, but, but we're not so sure about this absolute commitment to this creator of all of us and what he wants of us. Now, let me just quickly introduce a couple other reasons why I think we struggle with returning the gift of Jesus all too often, and then we're going to talk about them in a little more detail after I introduce the ideas. When God doesn't meet our expectations, we easily readily reject him, don't we? Many people's faith is strong and good as long as faith and religion meet our expectations of meeting uh, meeting the needs we want met. But when faith demands our, our very life, our money, our time, our discipline, our hope, our service, our patience, our priorities, our entertainment choices, our defining of what is true and good and right, it, it, it becomes a little bit more of a struggle for us. And, and another reason that we struggle with returning this gift, I think, is that, that identifying with or receiving Jesus also means rejecting some practices or goals or beliefs that we've lived in the past. And the problem with rejecting those goals and beliefs and, and things that we've lived in the past is those things are deeply embedded in our social circles, in our social interactions. And so when we reject these beliefs or these practices that we've had in the past, it puts tension into those friendships that wasn't there before. And we struggle with the idea of wondering whether we're going to be rejected in those relationships because we've changed. John 12 says it this way about the, the religious climate of the day around Jesus. John says, yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. I remember a really dear friend of mine whose first wife divorced him because of his choice to follow Jesus and what that meant for a change in some of the practices and beliefs of his life, and she wanted nothing to do with it. But let's drill down a little more deeply on mainly the two groups that we see in the New Testament who uh, rejected and returned this gift of Jesus, and that's the Romans and the Jews. Because if we understand the reasons behind them, I think it highlights a little of the ways that we struggle today with this ourselves as well. So one of the primary reasons the Romans rejected Jesus is not so much Jesus at all. it's, It's that they would have never given Jesus a chance because they hated the Jews. In other words, they rejected the Son of God because they didn't like the children of God. See, the Romans were the occupying force in Palestine at the time, and the Jews weren't too happy about that. I mean, there were racial slurs on both sides of the equation that went back and forth, and there was violence that went back and forth on both sides of the equation. And every now and then the Jews would have a rebellion, and the Romans would crush it, and then they would crucify dozens and sometimes hundreds of the, of the rebels alongside the road to send a message to the Jews of you should never do this again. And then there were also the Jewish zealots all along the way who had a habit sometimes of walking through crowded markets with a knife under their cloak. And if a Roman soldier straggled a little bit too much, they'd knife him and disappear back into the crowd and never be seen again. And the the Romans hated the Jews. They hated them for those behaviors and they hated them because they were, in their minds, an inferior people. And they rejected the people... that, that Because they rejected the people of God, they weren't open to the Son of God and receiving him. They would have never even given Jesus a chance. And honestly, that's not at all unlike what we experience today, is it? I mean, I know one man who walked away from his faith for 45 years because of how some church people treated his dad, who was a pastor. I mean, one of my greatest struggles of even deciding to be a pastor was this very issue because I grew up as a PK and wanted nothing to do with it, a pastor's kid. 
And, and, and it was a barrier for me, and I struggled with it. And we see it even in Jack's story of, of being hurt by a, a leader in the church and, and, and it being so disillusioning and so difficult that it takes several years to really want to come back to faith. And I love being able to see Jack's story because I love the ability of watching this over time and how God is faithful through this thing and how God orchestrates uh, bringing healing to that area for him as Jack was faithful to God as well. And here's the deal. Jack and I and this other guy that I talked about who left church for 45 years, we believed in Jesus, and yet we struggled. How much harder is the process for those kinds of struggles for people who do not believe in Jesus. See, those who don't believe, don't follow, often reject Jesus because of their experiences or perceptions of some church people. You know, I've known people who left church because they were divorced or their parents were divorced and the church didn't treat them kindly. They didn't treat them with grace and they leave their faith. And then there's the angry verbal knife jabs that we see posted on Facebook all the time or in our speech about stupid red-green cups. Actually, I'm supposed to not say stupid. I got reminded by a, a child that they don't say stupid in their home. Sorry. But we see those things on, we see these comments about red-green cups uh, just the, not having Merry Christmas and, and, and far too many other poorly thought out jabs at society that Christians make. And maybe, maybe this kind of disillusion with Christianity is describes some of you that are present here. I mean, you may not have, you may not even want to be here today. You may have been invited by a friend and you've chosen to be here because you like that friend, or you may be here with a family member and you want to some, show them support, but you don't really want much, if anything, to do with what we're talking about here today. And if that's who you are and that's how you think and feel, let me just talk with you for just a second. If you think the church is full of hypocrites, of self-righteous people, of annoying people, of sometimes hurtful people, well, here's what I'd say to you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you're kind of right. We are a sinful bunch of people. We're broken. We're torn. We're often weak. But let's not let the wrapping paper keep you from the gift that Jesus is. I mean, the truth is, every human being, you, me, everybody, we are all hypocritical in some way. We all believe, we all preach, we all talk about ideals that we so want to embody in our lives, right? But we don't perfectly live them out. Heck, sometimes, sometimes we don't even come close. Sometimes we're so bl- broken and blind to how we're living that we can't even see how we're not living like Jesus wants us to. And yes, the truth is it's far too easy for any of us, Christian or not, to become self-righteous, to fall out of healthy pursuit of faith and fall into bad religion and make others out to be worse sinners than we are so that we can feel better about ourselves. Yes, that kind of stuff happens, but don't let that keep you from the greatest gift you've ever been given and what we've, and what we've been given, this salvation, this, this amazing, amazing patience of a God who will stick with us and and allow us to follow Him and, and be with us when we fail so many times and when we're trying to grow into who He created us to be. You see, the truth is, Christians can be annoying and weird and hypocritical. And if you don't know any Christians like that, then it's because it's you. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. But you know what? Church, we as humans, 
in all of our brokenness and imperfection, in all of our lives, in the sin in spite of our education and our success, it all points to an incredibly loving, patient, committed Savior who's worthy of you following Him and is the most beautiful gift you could ever receive. You see, don't miss the really good news of Jesus by focusing on us, the wrapping. Focus on Jesus. That's where your focus should be. We're just amazed that He loves us. We're just amazed that He forgives us. We're just amazed at His patience. We're amazed that He wants us to be His children. Don't be like the Romans who wrote off Jesus because of the followers of Jesus and missed the Son of God. Now, the Jews had a little bit of different reason, I think, that, that characterized a lot of their rejection of Jesus. It says Jesus came to that which was his own, and his own did not receive him. I think the primary reason is what we already introduced earlier, the, the fact that they, he wasn't the kind of Messiah they expected. He let them down in their expectations. They were looking for a political military leader, right? And Jesus was not that kind of a leader. And, and, and we know that. We talk about that almost every Christmas, every Easter, and probably several times in between, right? But below that issue is a more fundamental motivation that all of us struggle with that we often overlook. And I think uh, actually a story from the Lenten season that we often quote then actually portrays that fundamental motivation in a really clear way. It's the story of the triumphal entry. It's a week before Jesus goes to the cross and rises again. And Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And to the cheers of the crowds, they're, I mean, they're going crazy about yelling out the coming king, the coming Messiah. They're, they're pulling, they're pulling a, a, a branches off the trees and laying them down and throwing their cloaks down in front of them to make this makeshift red carpet declaring the coronation is about to happen. That's the picture of the celebration going on. That's what they expect. But that's not Jesus' plan. And less than a week later, many of those crowds as well have turned now and they're yelling equally strong, crucify him. How could there be such a big change, a big swing in emotions and thoughts? It baffles us, but it really shouldn't because it's the same thing that you and I struggle with on a regular basis as well. They wanted what they wanted. They wanted a leader who would, or an organizer who would do what they had hoped for in the way they'd expected it to be. And when he led them in a way that was contrary to their wants, they turned on him. Because their support of Jesus really wasn't about God. It wasn't about worshiping God or serving God. It was about them, their needs, their wants, their vision, their expectations. See, we so often fall into the trap so easily of keeping ourselves the leader of our life and God is really the kind of the, the follower, kind of like a, a magic genie in a bottle granting us our wishes and supplying our needs when we need it. But God wasn't really God to them. He was only the need meter that they looked to, the one who showered them with gifts that they wanted and the way that they wanted them to be showered. And God didn't work the way they expected. So we could say they basically in one week left the church and they went from supporters to angry antagonists in less than a week. And see, you've experienced that same tension, that same wild swing in your life, haven't you, as I have? If disappointment, in, 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 if there's so much disappointment, the expectation gap is great enough between how we expect God to show up and how things are going 
Each and every one of us could, by next week, find ourselves struggling with anger towards God, couldn't we? I remember being severely disappointed after an experience where I had admired some Christian leaders for a long time, and I'd finally gotten to work with them really closely for a year, but the closer I got, the more I realized there were some really hurtful, significant character flaws. And it left me questioning my faith. It left me questioning God, angry at Him. It left me questioning God's call on my life and whether I wanted to follow Him. Haven't you faced that kind of thing as well? I mean, when sickness comes or or difficulty that doesn't go away in the way that you think it should if God were involved or or friends you expected uh, more of or respected leaving the church and creating hurt or leaders hurting you or financial difficulty or or God didn't show up just in some other way the way you expected. It's so easy for us to have those swings, isn't it? Isaiah 55.9 gets at the source, I think, of this confusion. In a, in a verse that I think sometimes I look at it and I go, this is so powerful and positively reorienting for me. And other times I look at it and I'm just utterly frustrated and angered by the verse. So hopefully you'll be on the first one today. God says of himself, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher, uh, so are, are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, clearly we know some of what God is saying here. Like God is saying, I'm far smarter, right? And we get that. God is far smarter. And we get the idea, too, that God is keeping together the entire universe and in the process trying to bring salvation and healing and blessing and peace to billions of people on earth, including you and I. But sometimes he has a little bit wider impact he's taking into account in what he's trying to orchestrate. We get that thought, but I, but I think there's one other way that that we could put this in Christmas terms for us today too. And I think sometimes God wants us to love Him and wants our heart, and He gets our heart by giving us surprise gifts that we don't always see coming. We don't always understand them. I mean, sometimes we get those surprise gifts and we think they're trick gifts, right? I mean, like, so, you know, you get this unwrap this present at Christmas and the box says it's a five-gallon solar shower bag. And you go, the only problem is I don't like camping, And even if I did like camping, I have no intention of stripping down in the middle of the forest because I'd feel like a nudist colony person and I'm not, that's just not me, right? So you get that gift and, uh, but then, you know, you finally open the box and you realize inside of it is the gift that you really, really wanted and it has nothing to do with a solar shower. You know, sometimes God loves to give surprise gifts and sometimes we just need to keep opening and exploring that situation to find the gift because it will eventually turn out that God really does have good planned for us and powerful stuff planned for us. See, the Isaiah passage goes on immediately from what I just read before and says, As the rain and the snow come down from the heavens and do not return to it without watering the earth and make its bud flourish, make it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so my word that goes out from my mouth, it will not return empty but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it, which is you will go out without joy and you'll be led forth in peace. See, I look back on the most painful disillusioning leadership experience I've ever had in my life. And as I lived through it, as I stayed in it, as I unpacked it, and even as I've unpacked it years later, 
of progressing and continue to unpack it. I, I keep coming back to the fact that I learned the most powerful lessons I've ever learned in life, and I learned some of the most liberating, freeing lessons personally I've ever learned because I learned more about love, about grace, about perseverance and forgiveness, which are the bedrocks of great relationships and the bedrocks that provide an environment for every one of us to heal through those circumstances than in anything else, in fact, maybe everything else that I've experienced in life from that one situation. I read the following story this last week of a, of a gal named Christy who received a gift she, did, she wanted to return. And yet as she continued to open it, she discovered God is a good gift giver. See, Christy was pregnant. And she had something, hopefully I'll say it right, something called hyperemesis, which is throwing up 60 to 70 times a day. And it was so bad for so long that she was in the hospital for several weeks and they couldn't control it. And they finally, the only way they could, you know, she was keeping on in the hospital going, when can this gift be returned? You know, I don't, this is not a gift I really like. And finally, they put her on steroids and that controlled the heaving. It's not something she wanted during a pregnancy. It's certainly not something anybody wants during a pregnancy. But at 26 weeks, they had to take the baby by emergency C-section. And to the surprise of the doctors, the baby's lungs were not in need of a vent. They were well enough developed. And the nurse came to her and, and found Christy and said, uh, what's been going on? And she said, well, I had this and I had to be on steroids. And they said, well, that's probably the reason why the baby's lungs are developed. And Christy began to see God's gift of vomiting and steroids was likely what saved her child's life. I have uh, two older kids. We took them to the school in August in, in Tulsa, and we got to see, we used to live there, and so we got to see some of our really close friends there, Dave and Margaret. And Dave was sitting with me, and he reminded me of a gift that he wanted to return that ended up being a life-saving blessing to him. See, Dave and Margaret were over to our home one time while we were living in Tulsa. My oldest son was just, uh, had just been born, and we were having a fun social evening together. And Dave and I went out to the, to the garage, and we we're going to play ping pong. And so we get the ping pong table out. It's really heavy. We're setting it up. And it, while we're setting it up, it collapses. And I look across the table at Dave, and his face is just deadpan, nothing, you know. And so I just did the perfunctory, polite, are you okay, Dave, expecting everything to be fine because there was no reaction. And he goes, I can still remember it today. He goes, well... No, not really. And I look a little closer and I see a little bit of blood. So uh, I run into the house, I grab some Band-Aids, I grab some disinfectant, I come back out to the garage and Dave's sitting on the floor picking up the table and I'm going, Dave, what are you doing? He goes, I'm looking for my big toe. That's when you really feel dumb about not taking time to figure out what's wrong and you're sitting there with Band-Aids and a disinfectant. It's just, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I'm warning you, if you come to our house and you might and play ping pong, you might go to the ER with me. Dave was talking to me and he says, you know, Ross, he said that toe getting caught off was a huge blessing. You see, we went to the ER that night and we spent three and a half hours there before he went into surgery and Dave refused to take pain medicine. He said, I'm fine. I don't, you know, it doesn't hurt. I don't feel anything. And Dave was just that kind of guy. He just didn't feel anything. He was just had that kind of pain tolerance. But several months after this incident, he was experiencing some discomfort. He went to the doctors and the doctors diagnosed him in his mid-20s with uh, a fairly aggressive form of testicular cancer. And uh, they'd caught it extremely early. In fact, they were so amazed, the docs asked him, you know, did you have any injuries in the past, you know, six months that would have made you hypersensitive to this? Because we can't believe you even had any sensation of something being wrong. We caught this so early. And he goes, yes, my friend cut my big toe off playing ping pong. <laughs> and when the doctors finished laughing, they, they credited that sensitivity to his early diagnosis. And that's only part of the good gift that Dave got out of this. 
uh, after he got done with the chemo, they said, you'll never probably be able to have children. And they have six beautiful children today. In fact, I, I, I tease Dave sometimes. I think you proved your manhood a little bit. You know, I mean, they're, they're such amazing children. It's like, man, Dave, Dave and Margaret, if you have children like that, just keep having them. Dave actually calls me, and uh, when he calls me, on my cell phone screen pops up a picture of his stubby toe that was cut off <laughs> years ago. It's that kind of a, it's that kind of a relationship. By the way, that table uh, that fell on his toe, it went away before we came to Ohio, so feel free to come to my home and have a safe game of uh, ping pong when you visit. We'd love to do that. See, when God isn't meeting our expectations, when we get a gift that we don't want or we question, just wait. Before you decide God doesn't know what he's doing, just wait. See, when Jesus was beaten and crucified, the Jews were saying, this isn't what we were wanting in a Messiah. And the tendency is when God is not working the way we think he should, we want to put distance or we want to walk away or we want to write God off or we want to get angry. We don't want to embrace. We don't want to adore. We don't want to receive God in those moments. But that's exactly what he wants us to do is to receive him and embrace him. This word that is translated receive is an interesting word in John 1. It talks about what did not happen. They did not receive him. But it's not used again in John until John 14 where Jesus is comforting his disciples. And Jesus says this. He says, I will come again. And here's the word. To receive you to myself. That where I am, there you will be also. Jesus is saying, I want to come to receive those who have received me. I want to embrace those who have embraced me. He's talking about his second coming. When he'll not come as a helpless baby in a major, but Revelation says he'll come as this conquering king who sets all things right. And that's what we often think about the second coming. But I think there's an even more powerful image in Revelation because it says Jesus will come as a bridegroom returning for his bride, the church, those who are followers of Jesus, those of us who have received and embraced him. And so we return to our beginning story. There was once this wealthy, powerful king who wanted more than anything to be loved and to love. And he fell in love with a simple, poor peasant woman. Why he should fall in love with her, it's really hard to say, but he did love her. And he knew he didn't want to face a future without her. So the king made himself nothing and took on the very form, the very nature of a servant so that he could demonstrate his love for her. And the question is, how does the story end? Does she receive him? Does she reject him? Does she follow faithfully only when her expectations are being met and when they're not being met, turn away quickly into anxiety, anger, and distancing herself from God and his people? Or does she fully identify with him and God's people regardless of what is going on? See, I'd like to think the story has a happily ever after ending. That the king made himself nothing and she was undone by his amazing love and, and that he would leave everything and become nothing and, and beginning as a baby in a manger 2,000 years ago for the chance to win her love and live with her. I'd like to think that's how it ends with the two of them spending the rest of their days together, enjoying one another. But I don't know how the story ends because it's not up to me how the story ends. The end of the story is up to 
each one of us, you and I, because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he came to that which was his own, but to his own, those of us he created and he loves so much, do you and I receive him and embrace him in all the moments of our life? See, we have the opportunity to receive and embrace him. We have the opportunity to welcome this incredible gift God has given to us. If you're here today and you've never heard of faith in Jesus that way, if it's, if it's always been about morals and being religious and doing the right things and that kind of a relationship with God is something you want, then come talk to me after the service and I'd love to talk with you more about that. But, but in our world today, it's so easy, isn't it, to return things? And it's all too easy for us to return the gifts God gives us if we're not careful, if we don't continue to open them and explore them. So here's just a a memory thing. Every time you stand at a counter in a store to return something, which we do often. I spent Friday returning stuff. Friday was my return day at the stores. Uh, Just as you're holding that receipt, remember and breathe a prayer to God just saying, would you come and help me embrace you? And is there any way that I'm holding you off in the circumstances of my life right now where I'm holding you at a distance, where I'm not fully embracing you? And just allow God to come to you in those practical moments. You see, I find it interesting in John, John 6 that the people rejected Jesus and rejected him when he started to make this statement. He said, if you want to follow me, you need to eat my body and drink my blood. He was giving a reference and a picture to what we celebrate today as communion. And what he's actually saying in that is you need to fully, absolutely identify with me. God speaking to you. Live in that same focused obedience to God and self-sacrifice that Jesus did. Fully embrace Jesus, His teaching, His way of life, His call to sacrificial living to make your life about His mission regardless of what you do for a job. So as you come today and we continue our worship and you cel- we celebrate communion, would you just, as you're receiving communion, ask the Holy Spirit to affirm His love to you because He does love you so much. And ask him to help you relinquish any expectations that are getting in the way of you embracing him today in this moment or when you face difficult times. Lord, we just ask that your spirit would come and do that right now. Make it real for us. We worship you. We adore you. We thank you for your presence with us. And Lord, we thank you for your wonderful patience with us, that you love us so much, that you don't want us just because of the gifts you give, And therefore, you came to be one of us so that we could love you truly and you could love us completely. So, Lord, help us to receive that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest's podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org.